Good afternoon and welcome to the 124th of the COVID calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at Drexel University in Philadelphia. Can we actually learn anything from disasters? Today I talk about the ways disaster researchers study the past and think about the present with Andy Horowitz and Jacob Remus. You can hear COVID Calls live every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern time on YouTube. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can also watch COVID Calls on Facebook Live and on Periscope. You can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please do help spread the word and send suggestions for future topics and guests, and please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, September 10th, 2020, there are 27,976,756 confirmed cases of COVID-19 globally, according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. That's up from 27,628,190 cases reported yesterday. 6,387,236 of those are in the United States. That's up from 6,334,158 cases yesterday. There are now a total of 191,536 deaths reported in the United States, up from 189,972 deaths reported yesterday. Given the news yesterday, about President Trump's comments to journalist Bob Woodward back in the winter time, I had thought today that uh, I would share some comments about that and uh, decided not to do that. Um, in fact, I'm going to stick with uh, what we usually do. I'm going to try to bring some humanity to the numbers. I'm going to read a life story or advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic. And today I'd like to continue the discussion we've had this week about Labor Day, and I'm gonna read uh, a little bit of a longer piece, uh, obituary of hospital workers, the headline, three hospital workers gave out masks. Weeks later, they all were dead. This appeared in the New York Times, May 4th, by Nicole Hong. They did not treat patients, but Wayne Edwards, Derek Braswell, and Priscilla Caro held some of the most vital jobs at Elmhurst Hospital Center in Queens. As the coronavirus tore through the surrounding neighborhood, their department managed the masks, gloves, and other protective gear inside Elmhurst, a public hospital at the center of the city's outbreak. They ordered the inventory, replenished the stock room, and handed out supplies, keeping a close count as the number of available masks began to dwindle. By April 12th, they were all dead. The pandemic has taken an undisputed toll on doctors, nurses, and other frontline healthcare workers, but it has also ravaged the often invisible army of non-medical workers in hospitals, many of whom have fallen ill or died with little public recognition of their roles. The victims included the security guards watching over emergency rooms. They were the chefs who cooked food for patients and other hospital workers. They assigned hospital beds and checked patients' medical records. They greeted visitors and answered phones. They mopped the hallways and took out the garbage. You know how people clap for health workers at seven o'clock? It's mainly for the nurses and doctors. I get it. 
but people are not seeing the other parts of the hospital, said Inita Bicot, whose husband died last month, and this came out earlier in the year, whose husband died last month after working for two decades as a patient transporter. I feel like those other employees are not focused upon as much. Her husband, Edward Bicot, made about $45,000 a year moving patients around the Brooklyn Hospital Center on stretchers and wheelchairs. He was among at least 32 non-medical hospital workers in New York City who have died during the pandemic, according to an analysis by the New York Times. And just as a reminder, uh, this piece came out earlier in the spring, May 4th. These workers make some of the lowest wages in hospitals and they are more likely than medical staff members to be black or Latino. In New York City's public hospitals, 79% of the workers who assist doctors and nurses are black or Hispanic compared with 44% of the medical staff, according to the most recent city data. In the early weeks of the pandemic, when even emergency room nurses had to reuse N95 masks for days at a time, non-medical workers were often given less protective gear than their colleagues who treated patients or none at all according to union leaders and hospital employees. If you work in a hospital, you are exposed to the same kind of virus as the doctors and nurses, said Carmen Charles, president of the union that represents 8,500 non-medical staff members at New York City hospitals. I understand management wanting to ration the supplies, but at what cost? Ms. Charles, who leads Local 420, part of the umbrella union for city workers, said some of her members had been denied the N95 masks that were reserved for doctors and nurses. At least 11 members have died, she said. Elmhurst did not require every employee to wear at least a surgical mask until April 15th, the same day Governor Andrew M. Cuomo announced an order mandating New Yorkers to wear face coverings in public, according to emails viewed by the New York Times. Priscilla Caro was a union steward and community leader in Queens. Her activism centered on issues including housing and fair wages. Ms. Caro, 65, died on March 30th after working at Elmhurst for 25 years. Mr. Edwards died, 61, died two days later after a friend found him on the floor of his apartment gasping for air. Both of them had expected to retire within the next year. Hospitals generally have not released the names of employees who have died, leading workers to collect the names through word of mouth and organize their own memorials. The Times compiled its list through obituaries and interviews with hospital employees and relatives. At the Brooklyn Hospital Center in Fort Greene, at least five employees have died in recent weeks, according to interviews. Raphael Cargill handled medical records at the hospital, including sometimes retrieving them from floors with virus patients, said his sister Lillian Cargill. She said that he was concerned about a colleague who showed up to work despite testing positive for the virus and that he had not received any protective gear when he developed a dry cough in late March. Mr. Cargill, 60, died at home on March 30th. We ran over there and had to stand outside, his sister said. The paramedics wouldn't allow us to go in. They came out and said they couldn't save him. Kim C. Floden, a spokeswoman for the Brooklyn Hospital Center, said the hospital was following state and federal protocols. It's difficult to pinpoint how any hospital employee contracted the virus. Many commute by public transit and live with family members who are also unable to work from home, but anyone working in hospitals inundated with patients was potentially exposed. In a lawsuit filed on April 20th, the largest nurses union in New York accused the state's Department of Health of enacting policies that turn hospitals into petri dishes. Nurses and other healthcare workers were denied testing even though they exhibited symptoms, the lawsuit said.
In response, a health department spokesman said the state was taking every step to ensure health workers have the support and supplies they need. That support may have come too late for Adil Montgomery, who worked as a security guard at the emergency department at Kingsbrook Jewish Medical Center in Brooklyn. He spoke out in March about lacking the protective suits that he saw doctors wearing around COVID-19 patients, according to a colleague who spoke on the condition of anonymity out of fear of retribution. After Mr. Montgomery and other security guards complained, the colleague said more protective gear arrived. In late March, Mr. Montgomery lost his sense of taste and smell and experienced flu-like symptoms, according to his brother. Mr. Montgomery, 39, was hospitalized at Kingsbrook a week later with chest pains. While waiting hours for the results of his blood work, he began coughing up blood. He died on April 5th. The hospital told his family that he died of a heart attack, but his family believes he had the virus. The last day, Gary Washington reported to work at New York Presbyterian Allen Hospital in northern Manhattan was March 29th. His body was aching, and a colleague saw him lying down in the cafeteria. Rosalind Washington, his wife, thought he was growing too old to keep working as a housekeeping employee there. He cleaned the rooms of virus patients after they were discharged, and his brother thought he should stop going to work, she said. So many housekeepers called out sick that the hospital began bringing in temporary workers, one of his colleagues said, but Mr. Washington was the family's primary breadwinner. He was not going to quit his job and not take care of his family, Mrs. Washington said. Mr. Washington, 56, died from the virus on April 8th, the day before his wedding anniversary. Before his death, he texted his wife from his hospital bed, I can't explain how much I truly love you. I didn't want to tell you how I cried like a baby thinking about how good you've been to me. His wife had his urn engraved with Boop P. Doop, the pet name they called each other. I had 25 years with this man. I'm so empty. Now I'm getting calls about widow's benefits, she said, her voice breaking. He's trying to take care of me still. All right, let's turn to our discussion for today. I'm really excited to bring back uh, both of my guests today have been on COVID calls, although much earlier in the pandemic. Let me introduce them. Jacob Remus is a clinical associate professor of history at New York University's Gallatin School of Individualized Study, where he directs the nascent initiative for critical disaster studies. He's the author of Disaster Citizenship, Survivors, Solidarity, and Power in the Progressive Era, which appeared with the University of Illinois Press in 2016. And he is the co-editor with Andy Horwitz, our second guest today, of the forthcoming book, Critical Disaster Studies, New Perspectives on Disaster, Vulnerability, Resilience, and Risk, due out next year with the University of Pennsylvania Press. Andy Horowitz is Assistant Professor of History at Tulane University. His much-anticipated book is now out. Last time I introduced him, I used the language that it was forthcoming, but it is out. Katrina, a History, 1915 to 2015. It's getting a lot of great coverage. He has another project underway aforementioned project with Jacob, and we'll talk about that here today. His writing has also appeared in the Journal of Southern History, Southern Cultures, Historical Reflections, the Journal of American History, the Atlantic, the Washington Post, and the New York Times. Jacob and Andy, thanks for coming back on COVID Calls. Thanks for having us, Scott. Yeah, thanks. So I'd like to remind everybody you can get your questions in. You just put them into the chat function of YouTube Live, if that's how you're watching us, or you can put them up on Twitter. Just be sure to tag me at US of Disaster, or you can go old school and email them to me at sgk23 
at drexel.edu. So um, good to see you both and can't wait to hear about your collaborative book project, which I know a little bit about, but we're going to talk about in great detail today. But I want to start maybe just with the news from yesterday and get your thoughts about this big story. And we've got tapes, we've got Bob Woodward, we've got Donald Trump, we've got um, a new way to think about something that was already bad, terrible. Uh, So I don't know. What are, what are your sort of immediate thoughts about this, Jacob? Let me start with you. Does it change anything after what you learned yesterday, Donald Trump? Well, I think speaking as a as a historian and kind of imagining what the what the ways historians are or will or or should be writing about this, I think it changes something because it helps us to answer uh, questions about why why Donald Trump and his administration responded or didn't respond the way they did, right? Um, I think it's really easy to look to act what uh, what has happened over the last uh, six, seven, eight months and sort of throw up our hands and say incompetence or mere stupidity or he, Trump is cognitively incapable of making decisions or plans. Uh, that is actually, I think, what I was thinking, and it turns out that that's really not true, right? He knew that that what what this uh, what this appears to reveal is that Trump was perfectly capable of understanding the problem. He was under he was he was following uh, what was going on in China, the epidemiology. He understood uh, how how the virus was spread, and um, he just chose not to do anything about it. And it's not even that he chose to downplay it, although that's the, that's the phrase that keeps getting um, that keeps getting used. It's that he chose not to do anything. Right? Presidents do a lot more than play up or play down something. I was thinking as you were as you were reading that time story uh, from the height of the of the terrible spring we had in New York that uh, actually not that many hospital workers ended up dying because once they got the the PPE, once they got the protective equipment they needed, uh, COVID or SARS-CoV-2 is not some super disease that gets through masks and gets through plastic and gets through PPE. Uh, It actually responds to the same things that we knew it was going to respond to, which is having masks that work, having um, for people who have it to have barrier masks, for people who don't want to get it to have filtration masks. Uh, and as a what you were describing about, about the, the people dying uh, because they didn't have it was not a problem with the disease. It was a problem of uh, their employers and their government choosing to let them die rather than giving them the things that everybody knew was going to save their lives. And when we hear that Trump understood in February that uh, this was a virus that spread through the air that was worse than the flu, et cetera, et cetera. uh, It's not so much that he was hiding information from us. All that information was actually publicly available. It's that he chose not to give people the, the material resources 
to save themselves, that he chose to let 100,000 plus Americans die. I really like the way, Andy, I want to bring you in on this. I really like the way that or I'm, I'm impressed with the way you sort of disaggregated two things that I didn't, it wasn't clear in my mind, but I, I think you're right, that there's the, the communication, the president, the executive as a risk communicator, but then there's also the actions, the logistic, the management piece. The two don't have to line up. In other words, Trump could have, if he sincerely was worried about the public being panicked, um, whatever that means to him, he could have downplayed the risk communication part while still enabling the PPE to go out effectively. Those two don't have to necessarily be in sync. Um, I think it's useful to understand the options he had open to him. Andy, what what are your thoughts? I agree with all the good things that Jacob just said. And, and I would just add that some of the debate over the last 24 hours has fixated on whether Woodward, the reporter, should have disclosed this sooner. But we can be reasonably certain that this was not a top secret conversation that only Trump had access to this information. Surely the whole White House and much of the executive apparatus and the leaders of the various agencies that could have responded. So, I mean, the, the sort of dodge here is putting this all on Woodward when really all of these people around Trump also could have spoken up. And it's yet another example of where, you know, he becomes this orange spectacle that we can dump our blame on. And he, you know, he deserves all of it. But he is enabled and supported by a vast apparatus of people who basically agree with him and uh, make it possible for him to do these things. So all of the all of the material um, responses that Trump might have made, the Trump administration also declined to make. The Trump administration also chose not to make. And so it's almost too easy to just put this as, you know, what did Trump do and what did Woodward do? It's what did the government do? And the answer yeah, is and I would I would actually add to that. Uh, in some ways, just focusing on the federal government is also letting people off the hooks. Uh, again, the, the things that, that we now understand that Trump, or that we now know that Trump understood about the virus in February were not secret. Uh, private epidemiologists knew it. Anyone who was paying, people who were choosing to pay attention knew it. And that means that state departments of health knew it, governors knew it or should have known it. University presidents with public health schools knew it or should have known it. And from top to bottom, from the president to mayors to school board to school superintendents, there was a massive, massive society-wide failure to uh, to respond in in a, even a halfway adequate or decent way. I, there's so I think that's really useful too. And you know, federalism has been talked about. You know, we, I talked with Don Kettle about federalism early on in the pandemic and one of the COVID calls. But it's it's revealing aspects of it that I guess I have not fully understood. So there's this lag time effect so that even if you're the governor of uh, your competent governor, you're Gavin Newsom or your your Cuomo or your, you know, Wolf in Pennsylvania um, and your voters are going to hold you to the task of public health. There's still that lag time that was there, a waiting time, an anticipation time, because there's the expectation that the Stafford Act and the various things that we rely upon to sort of manage our disaster response will kick in. At some point, clearly, and this will come out through, through records, um, they said, although much of this is public, Cuomo did it on 
every day on TV, he said, I'm, I'm giving up now. I'm not waiting anymore, I'm taking action now. But there's that other piece of other states that intentionally action was not taken so as not to irritate the president. And I don't know how we keep those two things in the same frame. It's like two separate governments. I, I don't know, Andy. I mean, it, you think a lot about federalism in your, in your work. I mean, I wonder what you, what you think about that. It doesn't seem like, I don't even know if describe that as federalism anymore. It just seems like two separate countries. I mean, there's no, there's no question that the experience of life in the United States is just deeply fractured and uneven. And it is often lived as if, you know, experienced at every level, uh, governed or, or, or lived as, you know, just citizens um, in totally different ways. And, and I guess the two things I would hold on to are one, that responsibility flows up. And so I do agree with Jacob that all of these other people also knew by sometime in February and may, you know, certainly could have acted in more effective ways, but the people with the most power have the most responsibility. And I think we shouldn't get distracted by the idea that, oh, this mayor should have made a call. It's difficult to imagine. I don't know how many, how many Americans could imagine, you know, even, even in early March, what early April was going to look like. And I, I, these local officials, the school superintendents, that's a lot to ask them that's really outside of their purview, as opposed to the head of the CDC. You know, then we're talking about something different. And I think, you know, as we come, as uh, Scott, as you say, once we learn more about the actions of individual governors who are responsible parties with a great deal of power and information, we will see that some people lied and killed people with their lies and other people's and, and other governors failed because it was a difficult problem. And I think we'll be much more sympathetic to the people that, you know, made made the wrong call in the absence of infinite information and the people who made the wrong call in the fullness of information. And we should evaluate those things very differently, even if in the end, you know, the deaths are, are, are the same. So we will return to Trump a little bit later in our discussion. Maybe we can leave that there. I want to um, make sure that I highlight both of you have published essays in a series that the Social Science Research Council is doing on disaster studies. Uh, which uh, I'm co-curating with Alexa Dietrich, who's been a guest on COVID Calls. You have, each have great essays in here. And I want to, I think they really help develop our conversation today. And Andy, I want to start with you. Yours is called Pre-Existing Conditions, Pandemics as History. You seem to think history is useful in how we understand disaster. Uh, you're both guilty of that, I think. Uh, let me read a little quote from this and draw you out a little bit. You said, thinking historically about the pandemic also serves as a reminder that its history will not end with the arrival of a vaccine. The narrow time frame the disaster idea imposes often cuts the story short on both ends, blinding observers at once to a disaster's endemic causes as well as its enduring consequences. So you're really challenging the way we think about time and disaster, which is immediately applicable to where we are. Every discussion now hinges on this vaccine question. When will it come? When will it come with the anticipation that that's the finish line? You seem to be questioning that. Yeah, I think it is easy. Jacob, you know, teed me up for this a bit when he said we have to remember that it's not really the virus itself that's causing most of the problems that we attribute to the virus. It's, you know, in the case that we were talking about before, the, the insufficient response to it. The, the, the refusal or the inability to protect people from a basically predictable and preventable suffering. And 
so when you start to ask what are the consequences of the pandemic, whether it's the 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 deaths that could have been prevented, the economic collapse that is purely a product of willful economic action or inaction, you know, we can we can give more money as a country or we can give less. And the the Congress has chosen to give less. So the economic suffering that's felt by individuals is not a product of the virus at all, properly understood. It's a product of, of congressional policy. Um, and, you know, I think I write in the essay that people who died will live on by their absence. And of course, that sort of personal suffering or their influence will endure in their absence. Um, so there's that personal level of suffering and trauma, but also the economic effects, the accommodations that we've made, the years or months or years missed from school uh, that, that the children will miss now, the, the things that people haven't done in their professional careers, that all, all of those um, accommodations that people are making now to our, you know, so seeming emergency will continue to last long after the virus is no longer concerned and, and are caused by, this is the, you know, the beginning, are caused by a series of policy choices and social arrangements that existed long before this virus mutated and became a problem. You know, it's, the thought experiment is not so difficult. Different presidential administration, different pandemic. Uh, it's not the, the, there's nothing intrinsic to the virus that is shaping what's happened. It's the social world that the virus enters. And I, I think that we as scholars of disaster are often, and, and just as, as, as everybody, you know, as people are interested in disaster, we're often fixated on some acute moment in time, some spectacular catastrophe, some moment when a sense of history actually helps us understand and explains much better the causes and consequences of that seemingly acute incident. So you propose an alternative starting point, although I presume there may be multiple alternative starting points, but in the essay, you, you propose the alternative starting point, which is uh, election day 2016. That immediately puts it in the political frame. Wouldn't an epidemiologist push back on, on that? Wouldn't... Uh, you know, could we imagine scientists pushing back and saying, well, I mean, you know, why do you have to make this virus political? I was on the, uh, on the Weather Channel last weekend talking about my Katrina book. And I said, I forget exactly what the phrase I said was, but I got a number of angry comments on Twitter that said, keep politics out of our weather. <laughs> and I thought, friends, you know, the, the politics is in the weather now. That's, that's how it goes. Um, that's what the climate crisis is. And, you know, I, I don't know what would be, I actually don't know. I, I, I guess what I would say. So I, I, in the, in the essay, I argue, um, yes, that we could start with the election of 2016, but I also say we could start in the 1860s when, um, when the federal government was the agent of emancipation for, for black people and leading to a century and a half of resentment among white people for any kind of strong federal action the, you know, the origins of that kind of small government conservatism, the idea that the federal government shouldn't be able to act in the public interest um, is a product of American racism. You know, So there are many places we could start that foreground different aspects of the virus. And I think that one thing that many Americans have become increasingly educated about is just the idea of structural inequality, the idea that pre-existing conditions one way or another shape our present. So in that hypothetical, you know, keep politics out of out of the pandemic, I think that ship has sailed. I don't know that we, as scholars, need to do that education so much anymore. There are, of course, you know, willfully ignorant and intransigent people, and and um, that lack of understanding can be very insidious 
among people who still believe in a kind of meritocratic individual sense of agency. But but nonetheless, I would hope that a good epidemiologist wouldn't push back on the idea that that the pandemic's responses are, of course, political always. So I, I have a. I have an epidemiologist downstairs. I could go run and ask. <laughs> no, but I don't mean to pick on. I've had so many great epidemiologists and public health experts who have given me very powerful, brief educations about social determinants of health, about the political framing of where they're funded. I mean, and I've just I've created an epidemiologist straw man, which I should not have done. So please let me take let me reel that back. Well, I was I was just gonna I was just gonna say that. I don't, I don't mean to, to pick ahead. on your straw man, but I but it, I think that uh, but that different disciplines can and should analyze things differently. And the job of the historian is to say no, no, no. This to to understand this, we have to go further back in time. Um, I I think about uh, Angie's really really wonderful article in the Journal of Southern History that I've taught for many years, in which he says, well, when does when does Hurricane Bessie start? And he 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 present he he presents all of these possibilities, and maybe the answer is sixteen nineteen, maybe the answer is fourteen ninety two, uh, maybe the answer is nineteen eighteen, um, and so kind of presents a presents a different uh, group of possibilities, and that's what that's why we need both historians and epidemiologists. But I do think that one of the things that uh, epidemiology can really help us with, maybe as distinct from medicine is that uh, this is particularly um, infectious diseases are things where we where we cannot help but see society embedded in our bodies. Like we cannot help but see that uh, society, both the good parts, both the both solidarity and the bad parts of the hierarchies and, and cleavages and white supremacy are are built into uh, this this disease and how it spreads and how it is experienced uh, broadly and and very specifically in people's bodies, and uh, I actually think that, that this is that this is one of these opportunities where we can really see clearly that um, we we cannot help but be affected by the other people who are around us and the structures and the institutions that are around us and the culture in which we swim because they're literally life and death consequences. And, and the point, is, you know, Jacob, just hearing you talk, you say, like, when, when did this start? And you're this, the referent there is presumably the pandemic, but, but we're not talking about the virus when we say this. Right. We're talking about right. the... Um, the economic problems attended, you know, that, that are associated with trying to not get the virus. We're talking about the educational problems that arise when you can't go to school. We're talking about all of the social accommodations that need to be made. The virus is, of course, at the center, but it tends to dissipate. I find that this approach makes that acute stressor often very hard to find. Because you know, again, most of the problems that we are having now are not caused by the virus. They're caused by our ideological contests over how to best respond to it.
want to remind folks you're listening to COVID calls, and I'm talking to Jacob Remus and Andy Horowitz today. Um, Jacob, let me come to. I want to. So we've. I think we've dealt with time there, at least for the moment. Let's deal with space. Um, and so just to give a little bit of a quote from your piece, um, also in that SSRC collection, and your piece was called COVID-19 in a Border Nation. Again, everybody can find these on the ssrc.org website. They're in a cluster of essays called Disaster Studies. COVID-19 in a border nation, Jacob, you say pandemics and other disasters force us to think in different scales of time and space. COVID-19, particularly the bungled U.S. response to it, should encourage us to interrogate the construction, place, and logic of borders in U.S. culture and society. To borrow a phrase from Canadian studies, you say we should understand the United States as a border nation. So that is a great essay. And... It really, I think, underlines one of the fundamental problematics of how we have been receiving information about this pandemic, which is we talk about the pandemic and then we constantly receive, we are inundated with very complicated graphics, so much information, which define it as a set of national stories. I do that myself in every COVID calls I read. I read global statistics and I read national statistics. Um, and you want to push on that a little bit, particularly in the American case. Can you can you say more about that? Yeah, so I'm really um, I'm really inspired by uh, by really at this point classic classic work of, of feminist political um, political science uh, international relations. Um, uh, Enloe's uh, I'm forgetting her first name, Cynthia Enloe's uh, beaches uh, beaches bases bananas beaches and bases. Uh, which is, I mean, 1980, uh, I read it in graduate school, a uh, book about trying to think about what is uh, what is uh, foreign relations or in a kind of a more current uh, history term, what is the United States' place in the world? And what Enlo encourages us to do, she's, she wants to find women, where are women in American foreign relations? And she says, they're shoppers, they're wives of dis- Diplomats. They are uh, prostitutes who are who are uh, hired by uh, American soldiers. Uh, they are tourists and, and and people making decisions about American tourism. And to think about American, the United States's place in the world, not just as uh, not just in the kind of the classical diplomatic sense of diplomats and soldiers and maybe trade relations, uh, but also as people coming in and out of the country. And this comes from my work, uh, and my interest then comes from my work thinking about U.S. and Canada, and the heart of the U.S.-Canada relationship is not what politicians will tell you all the time, which is cross-border trade and the billion dollars a day, a day of trade that goes across the Ambassador Bridge or, or oil coming from, from uh, Alberta down to Texas. Uh, but actually, that it is that the heart of that relationship is people who cross the border and their ideas and their relationships, and yes, their money and goods that travel with them. And I think, and, and so, this the essay really came from my trying to think through what what can we learn about the American place in the world by looking at COVID, and and one of the one of the things I think uh, that we learn is that 
American bodies, or not just American bodies, bodies that come and go from the United States are a really important part of the United States' place in the world, not just because of the ideas and the money, et cetera, that they, that they carry with them, but because of the germs that they carry with them. And so I was trying to think about uh, how, how the, the failure, although now I guess we know, going back to the beginning part of this conversation, it wasn't a failure so much as it was a deliberate choice, but that the, the refusal of the United States to control its epidemic, how does that then play a role in the rest of the world? And so just, just as one example, right? The, we are now in what uh, the, the historian in me is rebelling against this phrasing, but probably the longest border, the longest amount of time that the American and Canadian border has been closed to, to ordinary traffic. Uh, coming on to six months now. Um, that is because Canadians overwhelmingly do not want Americans to come into their country because uh, we, we can't be trusted not to bring disease with us. Uh, and as an American, this is a very kind of odd thing to say. Like Usually this is the rhetoric that Americans have about dirty disease-ridden foreigners in, in scare quotes, obviously. Uh, and it's, it, it, I think it should help us to think about differently about the United States' place in the world when that rhetoric is applied to us. So the, the immigration, the movement um, of the virus uh, through people who are coming in and out of the country is one aspect of it. And then you just hinted another part of the, the border being an important aspect, which is about xenophobia and also about race. Can you unpack that a little bit? I mean, that's been something that we've, we hear I suppose we hear about it from the context of, you know, Donald Trump and the way he characterizes the virus. I'm not going to use those words, but the sort of East Asian slurs that he uses and things like that. But that has a much longer history, doesn't it? It does. Uh, there is there has been a long history of, of xenophobia being tied to uh, tied to racism, tied to uh, sorry, xenophobia being tied to. Uh, supposed concerns about public health. Um, some of the some of the earliest uh, restrictions on people coming into into the United States were based on uh, supposed public health concerns. And of course, public health concerns, uh, public health is never really separable from power structures. Never really separable from imaginations of who is who is sick, who is well, who is who is safe, who is. Um, well, who is polluted is really is really what it comes down to. Uh, so there is this long history. Uh, I was in writing that part of the essay. I was really thinking about uh, the AIDS crisis and thinking about mm -hmm. the the previous kind of an, the, the previous time in uh, our memories of a, a total failure of the government to respond to an epidemic. Um, again, not so much failure, refusal. And thinking, of course, about the Reagan administration's uh, uh, response to AIDS and, and how that was structured by homophobia. And so then the question became for me, well, what, what is the equivalent in this instance? And to me, it, it seems clear that it is xenophobia, that it is um, that what structured that response and that ill response was 
uh, the one thing that has really struck that, that the Trump administration has been good at, has been competent at, which is um, xenophobia, which is uh, making the lives of immigrants and would-be immigrants and asylees as terrible as they can make it. And so that um, that then structured what what they did and didn't do, and that then had long-lasting, as, as Andy was saying, has will have really long lasting effects on everybody in the country and possibly everybody in the world uh, because of, of the refusal to to respond. Just reminding folks you're listening to COVID calls. We're talking to Jacob Remus and Andy Horwitz. Um, so what you're both describing, then let's just turn to the project you've been working on together, critical disaster studies. So just to recap a little bit, pushes on the conventional boundaries of time when we talk about disaster. It intentionally pushes on the traditional boundaries of, of boundaries when we talk about disaster. Where does it occur? It seems to rely upon um, a pretty thoroughgoing um, criticism of the notion of disaster agents, like what has caused this thing as some sort of unicausal thing. So... When will you both be satisfied? I mean, you know, in, in a sense, the disaster, the way you're describing it, 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 it disappears to a certain degree. It, it moves into the crowd of uh, other disciplines. It moves into the crowd of other causalities. This is a question I, I'm asking you because I wrestle with it myself and my own thinking about disaster. But if we can't pinpoint it in a time and in a place then it leaves us a little bit adrift when we open up the dictionary and look up disaster. So take us a little bit into your ambitions for this, for this concept, for the book you've been working on, say a little bit more about it. Either of you can start. I think we can all three talk about it. I'll let Jacob go first. Cause there's some, some thunder happening on, on my side. So. Well, I think I was going to try to make you go first, Andy. Uh, I I think that um, actually, Scott, what you just said that it kind of leaves us adrift and it leaves us maybe without disaster. Um, that is that I think might be our my my end goal. I actually I increasingly uh, find that even though my even though much of what I teach and much of what I write is structured around this kind of unspoken definition of disaster. I increasingly think that disaster is not actually a great concept and that what disaster does is, uh, so to take, to take Mary Douglas's phrase about, about uh, dirt being matter out of place. My argument would be that that disaster is suffering out of place. And what saying that disaster is suffering out of place implies is that there is suffering that we all will implicitly decide is in place. And that's what I want to, um, that's what I really want to push against. Uh, Andy has this great phrase in his book about how calling something is a disaster is a choice about deciding what is, um, which deaths are normal and which death and acceptable and which are not. That disaster deaths are not acceptable. Uh, other deaths are. Um, 
I would say I, I would put this as suffering. Maybe Andy puts this as suffering. I don't have the book in front of me. Uh, all everyone dies, so all deaths are eventually going to kind of we have to accept them. But um, yeah, I, I th that is my answer about where do we where we go. I actually think dismantling the very concept of disaster is probably um, the end goal. I don't know if Andy's as radical as I am. Yeah, Andy, let's bring let's bring you in on that. Yeah, I, um, it would be unsurprising that we are, you know, as as co-authors of of this book, that we agree. Um, my, I don't quite say suffering out of place, but I, but I do sort of notice the way that the work that that disaster does the idea of disaster seems to achieve two sort of semantic goals. Uh, one is that it affirms the idea of order. So it says, this is disorder. This is what I think Jacob means when he says suffering out of place. Some suffering is okay. So I don't know if you hear thunder on mine. Very dramatic. I apologize for the weather, but it's very political. Uh, the, <laughs> so Joe Biden came out a couple months ago saying that all COVID treatment should be free, which sort of makes sense until you ask, well, why not cancer treatment? Why not? Heart disease will still be the leading cause of death in, in the United States this year. Why is that not? You know that's going to kill more people. Why is not all heart disease treatment free? So, uh, in in my own, you know, in the Katrina book where I write about floods, I, I observe that disaster policy will, if you lo lose your house to a flood, disaster policy will build you a new house. But if you lose your house because your mortgage went underwater, you're homeless. So what the disaster idea does in these cases is to normalize death by heart disease or cancer, to normalize homelessness by an economic problem by making an exception out of COVID or a flood. And the other thing that the disaster idea does, and this is what we've been talking about most of our conversation, is that it bounds the problem in time. And so I think, uh, Scott, you started the question you started to ask was in part, what, what happens if we lose the disaster entirely? And I think if we lose the disaster idea entirely, we actually come up with much more effective solutions. The goal of disaster relief, disaster, you know, sort of disaster policy is, is almost always to put things back the way they were before. Mm -hmm. and what we have to understand is that the way things were before is what caused the disaster. <laughs> it's not an exception. It's a product of the history that it seems to upend. And so by letting go of the idea that the, that the goal is to eradicate the virus, we can see that really the goal should be to eradicate the pre-existing conditions that made us so vulnerable to the virus. And those, that to me, you know, that the what is a disaster question is a disaster, you know, um, there's no such thing as a disaster would be my catchphrase that I'd like people to take away from critical disaster studies. That can seem like a kind of postmodern intellectual parlor trick. But actually, it's, I think, a very practical intervention that will lead to much better solutions, will save lives if people came to see that what that the best solution to these acute crises is structural reform before the thing arrives, mm. rather than a sort of squinting at a narrow sense of what the threat is. It's not the flood or the virus, it's the inequality that makes many people vulnerable to suffering that they otherwise, that the, for, for no reason other than ideology. So that's the work that I think we're trying to do. So let me just push back maybe, or just sort of get a little additional clarification because you just said, Andy, you know, there's a bit of uh, danger here that this could be labeled as postmodern tricks, redefining something and saying we've solved it. 
there are real wildfires happening in California. There was a real hurricane, Laura, that happened. Um, people in Lake Charles have not recovered from that. So that interface between the natural and the human is particularly problematic in all of this. And we've, of course, inherited language around natural disaster that even that even I use, even though I'm critical of it. Um, but I know you don't want to, in this work, deny the reality of nature. But somehow, you know, a failed health system is so clearly a human creation. A failed justice system is so clearly a human creation, a national creation or a subnational creation. Whereas the flood and the fire, it's not as clear. The ice storm and the drought, it's not as clear. How do you make space for that in this analysis? Because I, I guess I'd say that we're less, I, I'm less concerned in the fire or the flood. I'm concerned in the human suffering that it causes. The, 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 the biggest problem, as I understand it, uh, the biggest problem that is facing Southwest Louisiana right now after Hurricane Laura is homelessness. My solution to Hurricane Laura is not targeted at the hurricane. It's targeted at homelessness. We should have a national right to housing. You know, the, so it's not that I don't think that those hazards are real. Of course they are. You know, you're going to burn up or drown. That's as real as it gets. Um, but the the solution is not to stare at the... I mean, we, we need experts who can chart where the wildfire is going to go so we can give clear evacuation orders, no doubt. We need great modeling on where the hurricane's gonna land so we know how to get out of harm's way. Every hurricane death should be preventable because there's decent science and warning in advance. So, you know, th this to me, is, it's not to say that we don't desperately need those studies uh, and, and those sciences, but I think as a historian, you know, as someone who cares about sort of political, social, and cultural history, the, the intervention that I wanna make is to say, okay, the scientists have pretty good hurricane modeling. We know the storm's coming. The problem is actually that people can't get out of the way because they lack the resources to evacuate. And so we need to think about public transportation. Um, and in fact, public transportation, not for nothing, would solve the problem of getting people to jobs and therefore would make it, you know, put some money in their pocket that would make evacuating even easier. So these are all self-fulfilling goods in a way, or virtuous cycles of, of good that would come from taking a structural rather than an episodic approach. And, and that's that's where my interest is. Not to say that, you know, the, the fire or flood modeling doesn't matter. We need it. But I think the scientists are good on this. I think we're pretty good on those topics. I think we need more help with the political ones. Yeah. And even the way you've just described it comes back to Jacob's, I think, uh, quite useful intervention earlier about epidemiology and the place for historians and epidemiologists to work together. And you just gave, an, gave us a very good reason why why uh, wildfire experts and historians need to work together and why seismologists and historians need to work together. Uh, the division of labor is important. It can't be one and not the other. That's what's often been missing. Though, so, Jacob, just uh, any reflections on what's on the table so far? Yeah, well, so I, was, I mean, I was thinking about, uh, as, I, as I do a lot, I was thinking about the 311 triple disaster uh, in Japan uh, nine years ago, nine and a half years ago. Um, and, and thinking about, uh, the way that disaster looks in a much more equal country where, um, I mean, which on one hand, I mean, the, thinking about a, a natural, a hazard like, uh, like the tsunami 
uh, happening in the United States is kind of too horrifying to think about. Well, we we do think about it. Uh, thanks to thanks to Catherine Schultz, uh, I think we are we are thinking about it. We or or some of us are thinking about it a lot about uh, the Pacific Northwest. Uh, and, and that will look very different from the way it did in Japan because of our massively unequal society, because of our uh, lack of housing, because of our lack of public transportation, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but I'm also thinking about the way that even in a much more equal society like Japan, there uh, you can still see the social cleavages and divisions and, and longstanding chronic crises played out, intensified in the uh, in the tsunami, uh, or, in the, or in the aftermath of the tsunami, so you see um, the way the way that uh, the demographic crisis and the aging society is is uh, shapes the response and shapes the unequal response. You see the way in which questions of rural depopulation and municipal reform have shaped rebuilding or not rebuilding in certain places, and um, those are as, as terrible as uh, eighteen thousand deaths were continue to be for their survivors um the way in which japan has and has not recovered even in that much more equal society remains deeply uh uh attached to the inequalities and to the 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 cleavages and the differences and the crises that existed in that society Uh, and so i think even in this is all just to say to, to amplify what, what Andy is saying, that even when there are these natural hazards and these natural processes, uh, necessarily what, what um, has the longest effects is, uh, is the suffering that is created by the way we choose to build our societies. One of the really powerful things about that, Jacob, in that approach to me, and I think it's one of the reasons that what you're both describing as a method is going to take a lot of work in terms of public communication and the way public the public perceives disaster because disasters have long been presented in the United States as moments of great civic harmony coming together charitable action i mean this has kind of been the defining way that disasters have been characterized um, and been studied not incorrectly within certain narrow confines as profoundly pro-social events in which people act on behalf of others. Um, And what you're saying, Jacob, is, but at the same time, they reveal cleavages that are there and also provoke, they not, a disaster is not just something you look through, it's also provocative of new inequalities. Yeah, I would say both, all of the above, right? I think yeah. the the keeping up the constant drumbeat of uh, post disaster solidarity or altruism is really important, and and part of that is because the more we say it, the more true it is, right? That uh, if you have a narrative, uh, which is the narrative I think I grew up with, and that my students grew up with, from a from disaster, the every man for himself kind of dogs and cats living together, mass hysteria, uh, story about disaster. The, the Ghostbusters uh, exactly. methodology of disaster, yeah. That, that, is, that, that, if that primes people to act in that way. And the, if we present altruism or solidarity as exceptional, then only exceptional people do it. And that turns out not to be true. 
Uh, we see that in, and so to bring this back to COVID, right? Overwhelmingly, people do wear masks, right? And mask wearing is an action of solidarity because wearing a mask is not about protecting myself. It is about protecting others. It is something that we do for other people and overwhelmingly people do it. And the more we tell the story of that is normal. It is normal to help other people, to do things for other people, to give up a little bit of our comfort to keep my neighbor or my grandmother or the stranger down the street alive, the more people are going to do it. And I think that's really important. I think it's also important to, even while we're saying that, recognize the way that disaster can the way that disaster and disaster response and disaster preparedness can worsen and deepen inequality. Right. So I think we have to we have to find a way to say both of those at the same time. So I think to me that's a segue to talk a little bit about uh, Andy about your book, the Katrina book. And as as I was thinking about this conversation today, I was thinking about you know my my answer to where does the pandemic start? And one of the answers has to be Katrina. And here's what I mean by that, that for some not insignificant number of people who had to evacuate New Orleans and moved to Dallas or Denver or Houston or Beaumont, wherever they ended up, that economic dislocation is not something that was made right with a couple of FEMA checks. That economic dislocation may very well have put them in that precarity zone, that pandemic, that the pandemic as a social event has really ravaged. And so that requires, that kind of an analysis requires a lot of, a lot of work. It, it, it doesn't, it means you've got to get past reading a week before the disaster and a week after and one year after and saying, okay, here's what that disaster was. I mean, that might give you one answer, but that hurricane affected many people in many divergent ways. And I think you could draw lines probably from that experience to some of these deaths in the pandemic. That That's just one way into the project. I know there are many others, but I'm wondering since you've been scolded in public on the weather channel, um, you know, how are you thinking about the book now that it's out and how are you thinking about it in that you can't go on the road and talk about it? You're, you're locked down in pandemic times talking about Hurricane Katrina. You know, yeah, I, I mean, I could mourn my, mourn my, uh, let me say, actually phrase it this way. I don't mourn my ability to stay home and stay safe right now. Uh, as much as I wish I was up, this is, I'm, you know, very, very grateful for, for my ability to, to stay home and, and, and don't want to, don't want to see anybody up in real life right now. Uh, you know, but I think you certainly could draw the lines that you've just drawn from, you know, on the, the experience, on the level of the individual or the neighborhood or the city from Katrina to COVID. I go, well, unsurprise you, you know, at this point in the conversation that I go farther back and find that these are two manifestations of perhaps the same problem. Uh, they, Katrina, Katrina is many things. One is it certainly is a failure of the federal government to safeguard American citizens. And it's a failure that stems from a at least 40 year project on the part of conservatives in America to weaken the federal apparatus for helping people, 
that is animated largely by racism and a belief that uh, if the federal government, the federal government is always acting illegitimately if it helps black people and therefore if it if it is going to help black people it should help no one at all and you know i could go on at some length there but that is basically my my theory of modern conservatism and and that you know and also a department of homeland security that is you know sort of fixed on a certain kind of terrorism at the expense of all other threats and distracted by it um these root causes certainly give you Katrina and they certainly give you the pandemic. So rather than trying to ask people to sort of wade through the history of one family and connect a series of dots over a number of years, we can just say, this is what happens when you have a weak, aloof and callous federal government. Problems that could be solved are not and people die. And that I think explains a lot about America and not for nothing, it explains those cancer deaths too. You know that we were talking about before. Uh, the United States, uh, some plurality of voters has decided that, that Americans unique among the world shouldn't have access to healthcare. So we die preventable deaths. We die preventable deaths from the pandemic. We die them from cancer. We die from cancer. We drown in floods because there's no bus. You know, these are all symptoms of the same problem. So I don't, and, and I think that an increasing number of Americans understand that and can look, take a structural approach to understanding the problems that we confront. And you know whether we're able to resolve some of those structural problems, I think is a really open question and is why many Americans right now you know, encounter our current moment with a mixture of, of, of great fear and great anger. I just wanted to use this, this idea that Americans may seem to be more open right now to understanding structural Problems, and I know you mean that as sort of structures of power within society, but also structural material problems as well. And the two are interconnected. The terminology beautifully captures both. Is it, how likely do you think it is right now that in the midst of this pandemic, that reading about Katrina in, in, in the way you talk about it, does allow them to see themselves in this moment. That's one of the things I always worry about with disaster studies is that if you write a book about poverty in America and you call it Poverty in America, that's a book that some people are, are going to read. But when you write a book about Katrina, it's it seems to be a focused, seems to be a focused study, which then moves us into that broader structural discussion. Do you think how how ready are Americans, I guess this is my question, to see in that specific case what we're living through now? How available is the comparative in this moment? It depends on which Americans you mean. I think that the people out in the street led by Black Lives Matter are extremely primed to understand a structural approach to contemporary problems. Um, other people will be totally resistant to it. But I think in the case of Katrina specifically, for those of us old enough to remember 2005, um, there was this persistent question about how could this happen in the United States? That somehow there was a widespread belief that the privileges of American citizenship, or at least those that pertained even you know, to, to wealthier people or to white people, that this somehow shouldn't happen. Um, 
And that question to me says that people understood then that there was a, a bigger problem than a failed levy in one city, you know, out on the margins of America. That people understood that this was less a New Orleans problem than, a, than, a, than an American problem. And I, you know, and so I think people, I, I hope that people who come to my book will come with an interest and a curiosity about it that does not seek to sort of limit what Katrina is to a few terrible days in New Orleans in August 2005. And, you know, the, if I could just sort of say the, the book starts, the subtitle of the book is 1915. And long story short, the reason I start in 1915 is that the best way of predicting whose homes flooded during Katrina is most of the buildings built before 1915 didn't flood and most of them built after 1915 did flood. So simply knowing that fact tells you that the 20th century history of New Orleans, which is the 20th, the history of 20th century American urban policy, is somehow implicated in what happened in 2005. And you can't, you know, as I write, you can't start when the levees broke because someone had to build the levees before they could break. I, I like to believe that Americans are, are ready to understand that. And I think, you know, rather than writing about poverty in America, writing about these specific incidents does give people I mean, not to be crass about it, but it helps um, clarify the costs of these of these structural problems. You know, it's not to to say that they're structural is not to say they're so diffuse that they don't have real or specific or individual impacts. So we can look at how they erupt in the catastrophic instant, but then sort of follow the fissures all the way deep to see where the structures lie that need to be repaired if we don't want that same problem to erupt, you know, next door the next week. Just a quick reminder, you're listening to COVID Calls, talking with Jacob Remus and Andy Horwitz. Um, I want to, we have a little time left. I've had a couple of, I have a lot of interesting conversations about disasters these days, as, as you both do. Um, two things that came up in the last week that I was so glad I was going to get to talk to both of you about. One, it's come up several times unprompted, people on COVID Calls talking about the surreal and the uncanny, both those words have been used experience of being a person who spends all your time studying disasters at a distance, that is studying Fukushima as an American or studying the 1918 influenza as a person living in the present, while this disaster is unfolding. And I, and I wonder what you both, just what that means to both of you. Like, it, you know, in some ways it maybe we would think it prepares us somehow better to be critical of all these things that are unfolding in real time. Um, so that's one thing that's, that has come up and I'm wondering what you think about that. And let me tie another one to that. I had a, a I went on, I was raging on Twitter about something and, um, and actually someone who lives in new Orleans wrote back and put up and said in a, in a kindly spirited way, but I took it as a correction she said, you, you write like a person who studies disaster but hasn't lived through one. And I thought that was interesting and connected to this previous point that's been coming up, that we all seem to be living, we're all living through this disaster. There's a simultaneity of this pandemic, but not everybody's going to get it. 
And so it's just been on my mind and I wanna bring it back to our previous discussion about critical disaster studies. Do you have to live through disasters to be able to write about them, to experience them in, a, in an authentic way? What does it mean to be a scholar of disaster living through one? Jacob, let me start with you on these questions or anything else in this sort of neighborhood of contemplation, because it's been on my mind a lot since these two things have come up. Yeah, I mean, I have, so I, I'm trained as a labor historian and labor historians are uh, kind of trained that we don't, we're not worried about presentism, that we're, we're trained that the job of the labor historian is to um, produce scholarship that's going to be helpful to the labor movement. Um, so we're kind of, we're really embedded in the present. And I have, I think, brought that somewhat to my scholarship in disasters. And so kind of to answer your first question, I actually find it exhausting. I find it totally exhausting that somehow, that like in addition to understanding or living through a disaster or watching a disaster as someone who is living through it or someone who is watching it or a, or a, a citizen, I somehow also have to be doing that analysis in real time. Uh, for a while, I was really uh, kind of upset personally that somehow when a disaster was happening, I, I somehow became very uh, kind of careerist and tried to get interviewed. And, and this, this seemed like a good moment for me when bad things were happening to other people. Um, but I also, but I also really want to resist this idea that you can't study disasters unless you have lived through one. If that were the case, nobody could be writing about the 19th century right now. Uh, that 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 the very premise of the historical profession is that we can write about things that we did not experience, and that we do that through primary sources. That we do that through uh, reading or otherwise accessing documents uh, or other texts that uh, that were produced by people who were who, who did live through it and then uh, interpret them and I don't um, I don't want to give up on that idea that either because it works both ways I don't want to give up the idea that uh, we can learn about experiences of other people or of other times or of other places that seems really limiting and small and similarly, I actually don't want to accept the idea that people who live through an experience are necessarily the experts in it, that there are experiences that we go through, uh, big and small, not just disasters, but I don't know, our own families, our own, our own experiences as, as workers, that um, people outside of them might be able to see them more clearly or more or see them differently than we are. This is, I think. This is right. why I believe in education. This is why I believe in the liberal arts, right? And I, and I, and I think that, um, so kind of at both ends, I really do rebel against this idea that you have to have experienced something in order to, to understand it. Hmm. I, yeah, I think, I think my friend in New Orleans, that's useful. And I think my friend in New Orleans was, what she, what she was really meaning to say is that um, you have to have felt some hurt you have to have lost something to really get it. So that is, you're right. I mean, that's powerful. And that what that means is there's a certain privileged voice about particular disasters. And I, yeah. I've thought I mean, about I just, that. I, mean, I lived, I lived through Sandy. I lived in New York during Sandy. 
but I didn't lose anything. Um, So I guess I'm not sure. I I, I guess I'm just not sure that 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 disaster is not a universal experience. And I I guess I don't want to privilege the one person's, not your friend, but one person's experience, my experience of Sandy is not the key to my disaster, cannot be the key to my disaster scholarship. Now, it is true that my disaster scholarship is influenced by that. My disaster scholarship started with started with being an American in Katrina, then sort of traveled through being someone who was sort of Japan adjacent during 3.11, and then sort of I, I was finishing the book when Sandy happened. So like, I, I can't yeah. extricate my those experiences from my scholarship, but I don't think that they are what allowed me to write about uh, Halifax or Salem. Right. I think that's, um, Andy, I want to get you in on this, but I think there's something in here that we have to spend more time with because it's true. We, I think we should privilege survivors with, because, and I draw this from, from Robert Lifton, there's a certain kind of special knowledge that survivors have, but we got to do that in a way that doesn't take away the possibility of solidarity and understanding for those who are impacted, but maybe not, they don't have a family member who dies or their house isn't destroyed. I, I guess, you know, in the, the reason this has been on my mind as well, just in so much of our conversation, we talked about the very many different forces that divide people. I mean, that's some of what disaster scholarship reveals is all of the, these many divisions that are thrown open and, in disaster. Andy, that's an awful lot to lay on your plate here to make sense of for us. But I guess just back to my initial sort of thinking, well, what do you say when people ask you those questions? You must get asked this question. You know, did you, something happened to you in Katrina? Is that why you wrote this book? Without, um, I, I would, you know, without repeating much of what you've said, with which I agree, you know, that the, that people who experience the, the pain of these events acquire a special understanding that one never wants to have oneself and that it needs to, that, you know, anyone who has suffered should be honored and respected and their voice privileged on the subject. I, I completely agree with. Um, and at the same time that the project of the historian is to try to be empathetic with times and places that we can never go. And that's, that's just what we do. And that's an important part of cultivating our sense of humanity, not just as historians that, you know, these are both incredibly important, but, I think an, another spin on the ball, though, is to say, well, I often ask my students, where did Katrina happen? And it's very different to say it happened in the Lower Ninth Ward, or it happened in New Orleans, it happened in Louisiana, in the South, or in the United States, or it happened in the world. And if you approach these events, as I do, as eruptions of, of systemic and structural problems, then you can say, uh, it is certainly true, thank God, I, you know, never, my house never flooded. Um, but I know what it's like to live with a weak and callous state. I, I know what it's like to feel the precarity of um, knowing that there are, are solvable problems that I can't solve myself, that other people could solve and they refuse to. Um, because I also am an American, uh, you know, I, I also rely on structures that are beyond my control. So I, I think if we, or, or you know, you could, go, you could go other ways with that. Um, I have a feeling that Black Americans understood Katrina as an experience of, that it was familiar to them as an experience of racism or state violence. 
that they didn't have to get wet in the flood to understand what was happening on a structural level. So I think that, just to repeat myself, we can be too narrow about what the disaster is. And if the disaster is not the hurricane, if the disaster is the failure to protect people from the hurricane, the reapportioning of the suffering from many onto a few, then we start to realize that we may be more familiar than we would like to admit often with these, with, with these structures of power. So just so people know, after listening to this conversation, the books they need to go out and get Andy Horowitz's new book, Katrina History, 1915 to 2015, and Jacob Remus's book, Disaster Citizenship, Survivors, Solidarity, and Power in the Progressive Era. You could go pretty far in understanding disaster studies by picking those two up. I want to thank you both for your time today. And I want to remind folks who've been listening to COVID calls tomorrow, September 11, the 19th anniversary. I am so pleased to welcome Glenn Corbett, professor of fire science and a participant in uh, multiple different iterations of post 9-11 disaster investigation and an advocate for victims' rights after 9-11. So please do join me for that five o'clock tomorrow with Glenn Corbett. Jacob, Andy, thank you both. Thank you. Thank you, Scott. And thanks for everything you've been teaching us with, with the COVID calls and with all of your work. It's a great discussion. And, and again, uh, we'll probably want to bring you both back and, and come at this again. I feel like there's never enough time when, when we get going on this. Just remind everybody, stay healthy. COVID calls every day, five o'clock. We'll see you tomorrow.